Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good evening. I'm Dr. Douglas E. Strusand, an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, because I also teach my day job at the Marine Corps Command of Staff College, I have to say that Nothing that I say here represents the views of Marine Corps University or of any agency of the U.S. government. Uh, beyond that, I'm very pleased to welcome you here and welcome you to a talk by one of my best friends and by a truly great scholar. Um, I'm a very fortunate man. I know a lot of people that it would be great, that it's a great pleasure to introduce and Dr. Bruce E. Bechtel, Jr., as his voicemail message always reminds me, is one of those. Um, a lot of things I can tell you about Bruce. I can tell you that he spent 20 years in the U.S. Marine Corps as an enlisted crypto-linguist. I could tell you that in the course of that career, he completed his uh, his bachelor's and master's degrees and uh, began his PhD, which he received from the Union Institute, having left uh, the Marine Corps to join the Defense Intelligence Agency. I could tell you that uh, he attended the U.S. Marine Corps Command and Staff College, which is for majors, five years after he left the Marine Corps as a gunnery sergeant. I could tell you that he, um, within five or six years of leaving the Marine Corps, he completed his PhD. And uh, shortly after that, began teaching in the uh, professional military education system, at first at the Air Command and Staff College in Montgomery, Alabama, where I'm sad to say he actually likes the weather. Um, before coming to the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, where I was fortunate enough to meet him in 2005. I could tell you that the book he's talking about this evening, North Korean Military Proliferation in the, in the Middle East and Africa, is the fifth book that he has published since 2007. But the, a lot of people would tell you those things. I can tell you the secret of respect. Listen very carefully. It's a four-letter word, so I'm going to spell it. W-O-R-K. The reason that Bruce Bechtel is so thoroughly knowledgeable about North Korea and that he's been able to produce five books in 11 years is that virtually every year, unless uh, he's uh, out enjoying himself with one of his dissolute friends, like myself, um, he spends four or five or six or seven hours into the wee hours of the morning. So if I get an email from him at five o'clock, it's not because he's, just, he's gotten up early, it's because he's still up, um, reading everything that comes out having to do with North Korea within that last 24 hours. So that every day he is working on what is going to be a chapter of the next book. 
And if you're willing to work as hard as Bruce is, you can write that many books too, provided, of course, you're also as smart as he is, and your languages are as good as his is. I can also tell you something that you're about to find out for yourselves, which is that he has a tremendous sense of humor. And with that, I'm pleased to present to you Dr. Bruce E. Bechtel, Jr. of Angelo State University in San Angelo, Texas, where they hired him to start their Global Security Master's Program. How y'all doing? Everybody hear me? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there are some things Doug could tell you. How am I doing? <laughs> well, how many people here have, uh, have already seen a flyer and basically know what my new book is all about? How many people here have no clue what the new book is about? Really? How many people here have seen Three Faces of Eve? Joanne Woodward, 1958 Academy Award-winning performance, but I digress. Um, this book is about uh, something that has never had a formal book written about it, ever, um, which, still, which still stuns me, um, North Korean proliferation and the things that support it. Um, every time that we see North Korea testing a missile, a new mobile rocket launcher system, a new tank, a new truck, a new anti-tank weapon, a rocket-propelled grenade. We should not only think that of that in one way, which is to say the threat to South Korea or even Japan. We should think of that in two ways. Um, the threat from, to the region, which is definitely true, but also the threat that North Korea presents to us based on where they proliferate. And North Korea proliferates all over the world. Um, Doug, could you hand me my book when you get a chance? It's in my backpack. The one that has the Iowa logo on it. But uh, uh, based on the fact that they proliferate um, all over the world, really, but the two main region, uh, regions that they proliferate to, thank you, sir, the most are the Middle East and Africa. The Middle East to the tune of two to three billion dollars a year in Africa to hundreds of millions of dollars a year to over a dozen countries. Um, so after reading several articles and journals, some chapters and books that basically poo-pooed the fact that there was much North Korean proliferation since the end of the Cold War, um, I decided back in 2014 that I was actually going to start doing the research and the writing for a book that looked at North Korean proliferation in the Middle East and Africa, the two key regions, and all that it involved. So what you'll see when you read this book after you buy it, which is very important, um, you're going to see several things. First of all, I'm going to start you off with um, what the military capabilities are of North Korea. And why is that? Because you really can't understand um, what's happening in Iran or Syria and its civil war or the many tin-pot dictatorships in sub-Saharan Africa, unless you understand the capabilities that North Korea is actually giving them. And that ranges from things like, you know, training their special forces, to giving them artillery, to even providing munitions factories to them. So that's the first part. 
Second part is, how do they get around sanctions? How many people here realize that North Korea is under insanely large amounts of sanctions? I'm not going to ask how many don't realize that, or how many of you have seen Three Faces of Eve, which should be all of you, by the way. Um, so we all know North Korea is under an insane amount of sanctions. And so it, I have a whole chapter in the book that looks at that. Um, and finally, what I'm going to hopefully take up the largest amount of time with today in the talk, and what will take up most of your time when you buy the book, and you will buy the book, um, is where they proliferate to and what they proliferate to those guys. So um, I have a whole chapter in the book on Iran, a whole chapter on Syria, and a whole chapter on the African continent. Um, so let me talk to some of that. Uh, let me get to the first thing that I look at in the book, and that's uh, what they actually have. Um, for those of you who watch North Korea, and I'm guessing that's at least some of you. I know some of you here definitely watch it, especially Struzan. He's a big North Korea fan. Um, that was a joke. You can courtesy laugh if you want. But uh, um, for those of you who watch North Korea, we have seen them do all kinds of tests for many years now. But that really picked up when Kim Jong-un came in. So we've seen them test, for example, um, missiles that can hit Japan. We've seen them test three different kinds of nuclear weapons, uh, thermonuclear, plutonium, and highly enriched uranium. Um, we've seen them test new tanks. We've seen them test new trucks. We've seen them test new rocket-propelled grenades. Um, but let me run you through what really caused concern for the United States. Um, Everybody understands what the UNHA is. We call it the Tapodong, the North Koreans call it the Nodong, or excuse me, we call it Tapodong, the North Koreans call it the UNHA. We call it a ballistic missile, the North Koreans call it a space-launched vehicle, which means missile. Um, so we've seen them now successfully launch that twice, launch a satellite into space. Uh, a lot of you would say, well, okay, so what? So they launch a satellite into space. Does everybody here know what electromagnetic pulse technology is? Okay. Um, we don't know, we being me and the mouse in my pocket here, um, how far along North Korea's EMP is. What we do know is they have it. So something to keep in mind when you see them launch a satellite in the sky, okay, so that's not an actual missile aimed at us, well, they could do EMP type stuff with it. Um, Another aspect of their missile program has been their mobile missiles. Now, why are mobile missiles so much more important to them than a fixed missile site like the one at Tongjiangni? Um, for you guys who don't speak Korean, Ni means village or piliji. So, as we're talking about these, these mobile missiles that aren't at places like Tongjiangni, um, that means there's no warning time for us when they're getting ready to pull that missile out of a tunnel or out of a hardened site and launch it. And they've launched several of those. Um, so just let me run through some of those if I could. On uh, May 13th, 2017, they launched the Hwasong-12, what they call the Hwasong-12, um, which went 4,500 kilometers and proved that they could hit Guam which, by the way, has the best beach bars in the Western Pacific. So I would cry if Juan went away. 
Uh, but May 13th to me is also a very, 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 very important date because May 13th, 2017 is when my baby girl, the apple of my eye, the center of my life, graduated from the University of Iowa. So much more important than the Kwasong 12 development, at least to me. Um, in July 4th, in honor of our Independence Day, the North Koreans launched their first successful mobile ballistic missile that was an ICBM. That was what they called the Hwasong 14, which was a two-stage ballistic missile, um, which of course had a stage from the UNHA we talked about earlier. Uh, so very important stuff, using one system to develop another system. And they have also launched a system called the Hwasong 15, which can hit supposedly um, the Midwest of the United States. The Wasong 14 is said to be able to hit Alaska. Um, now, anytime you see estimates from a scientist or a, a pundit that's writing for someplace like 38 North or CSIS or some other think tank, always remember that when they're talking about how far a missile go, it depends on, on fuel, it depends on weight, it depends on how big the warhead is. So these are all just estimates. There is one way to tell how far a North Korean nuclear-tipped missile can actually go. Does anybody know how that way is? Go ahead. Somebody said something? All right. It's something like when I was in driver's ed when I was 16. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> to launch it, right? So the only way to actually tell how far a missile can go with a nuclear warhead is if they launch a missile with a nuclear warhead, say, into an empty part of the Pacific. And I can't even imagine the reaction from the world, even when that ever happens. But it's inevitable if the talks break down between President Trump and Moon Jae-in and, you know, all the other people. So there's that kind of stuff that they have. There's that type of capability. Um, brand new tanks, brand new multiple rocket launchers. Um, a brand new submarine that's capable of deploying for 72 days and firing a nuclear missile, which is solid fuel, by the way. Does anybody here know what cold fuel technology is or cold launch technology is? Okay. Um, can you simulate that with your hand? I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll help you out here. Cold launch technology means it gets popped out of the submarine underwater and they shoot it out, right? And then after it comes out of the water, it goes and takes off. That's cold launch technology. Now, could you have done that? Due to my low overhead, I can pass these savings on to you, the customer. But uh, um, that's cold launch technology, which is unique. And I thought I simulated it pretty well, frankly. Um, they have that technology now for a ballistic missile um, that goes about 4,500 kilometers. So they have the capability now legitimately to hit Hawaii with a ballistic missile that's got a, uh, a, uh, a nuclear warhead on it. And they've used that uh, on a land-based version of the missile as well. Um, the name of the missile is the Poxosong. They call the first one one, and they call the second one two. And uh, the land-based version has the same cold launch technology, even though it's launched from land. <laughs> I thought I did that pretty well. The North Koreans have also advanced their cyber warfare technology um, quite a bit, including um, going after money in banks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
So when you look at all of these capabilities that North Korea has, conventional capabilities, um, I forgot to mention their chemical warfare capabilities, that's advancing as well. Um, unconventional warfare capabilities, WMD capabilities, conventional warfare capabilities, the thing you have to remember is all of that either has been proliferated or will be soon. So um, that's that. Let's talk about their financial networks. Um, if anybody, is anybody going to sleep yet? Everybody awake? Okay, good. Um, I asked my daughter who's 24, who's now in graduate school, honey, you know, my fifth book just came out. Have, have you read any of my books yet? No, dad, you write boring stuff. Okay, just keep paying my tuition. Okay, got it, honey. Um, so the financial networks are composed of um, what's called Office Number 39 and the entities that come under that. Has anybody here ever heard of Office Number 39? Some of the Korean specialists have, right? Office Number 39 is an office in the party that was formulated by Kim Il-sung for his young son at the time, Kim Jong-il, to raise extra funds for the regime. It's in the party. Um, office number 39 engages in stuff like drugs, counterfeiting, illicit financial networks, but especially proliferation. And that's what we've been seeing. Um, office number 39 has seen to it that they are financing the system to the tune of $5 billion in Kim Jong-un's slush fund just in Europe. There are also illicit uh, funds I would call it a slush fund, but it's essentially owned by the party, which answers directly to Kim Jong-un, in places like banks in the Middle East, Africa, Singapore, Southeast Asia, China, and Russia. Um, North Korea has banks. Uh, they're all sanctioned by the United States, and there's very little money in them. Generally, what they do is they'll pass the money through a North Korean bank into a third party, not a North Korean, a foreign national, who will then funnel that into another country's bank that is a legitimate bank. Sometimes the banks in places like Singapore and Malaysia don't even know that this is going on. So, um, all of this comes under office number 39, so remember that word. Um, the thing that is, is frightening about all of this is that um, the people that are running these networks if they, there is a potential for them to defect and take a bunch of money with them. Who remembers the guy who defected in London that was the deputy ambassador, as they call him? Anybody know how much he took with him when he defected? What is $58 million, Alex? Yeah. Guy in Vladivostok defected the same year with $8 million. I mean, there's, there, there's that danger. Um, there's a, a defector named Kim Kwong Jin, who's a good friend of mine. Uh, my wife is good friends with his wife. My wife's dad is, is from North Korea, so she understands the Northern accent real well, which is why they became good friends. Um, if, if you all who are Korean have ever talked to somebody from the North, you know that that accent's very different. Like somebody from Texas trying to talk to somebody from New York. We understand how to speak English, and they're from New York. Um, so... Gosh, nobody's laughing at my jokes today. Jeez. So, um, so there's that. Um, the danger. Um, let me talk about a couple of ways North Korea actually gets through the sanctions. One, um, they'll do things like getting money into non-sanctioned banks using go-betweens. So, for example, according to John Park, who's a scholar at Harvard, 
Um, it is common now to pay 15 to 30 percent of funds to go-betweens who are Chinese in China. We'll then put that money in a Chinese bank, a small bank usually, for the North Koreans. Um, North Korean's shell network of front companies, bribed individuals, and phony banks, along with illicit bank accounts, helps them to get around sanctions. For example, um, does anybody know what the travel regulations are for a North Korean traveling to Malaysia? I would think, really? What, what, are you a spy? How do you know all this stuff? <laughs> um, it is, just so you know, so I can enlighten you as well as this young man back here. Um, it's almost the same if you're a North Korean to travel to Malaysia as it is if you're an American to travel to the ROK. Think about that. So I went with my family to Seoul in July because I was ordered to, and I do what I'm told. My wife said, it's time to go back to Korea, and we went back to Korea. You know what I mean? So for me to go less than 30 days, I needed no visa, nothing. We got lots of airline flights there. A lot of people there spoke English. It's almost the same for a North Korean going to Malaysia. When I was in Seoul in July, I looked up a good friend of mine who's given me a lot of information for this book. I'm sweating a lot, by the way. I'm a short, fat guy. We sweat a lot. Um, that I asked him, I said, why? And by the way, after um, Kim Jong-un's brother was killed with a WMD at Kuala Lumpur, everybody knows about that. The Malaysians changed a lot of those travel regulations. Well, they've changed them back. And so I asked my buddy, I said, why is this going on? Because he made trips to Malaysia, done investigations. He said, well, a lot of the Malaysian officials are on the take, including generals and some high-ranking government officials. So now you know. And there's any Malaysians watching this, you know, later, please don't have me killed. I, you know, I want to watch my daughter graduate from graduate school. Um, during March of 2013, uh, South Korean officials found hundreds of dummy accounts in several dozen countries worth billions of dollars. That's just in 2013. It's gotten worse. According to SIPRI, S-I-P-R-I, anybody ever heard of SIPRI? The guy in the back, man, what do you do, read all day? According to SIPRI, uh, which is a Swedish uh, think tank, very highly respected think tank, um, the majority of operations overseas that violate international law violate sanctions and counterproliferation initiatives are conducted by foreign individuals and foreign front companies who are operating on North Korea's behalf. So in other words, my name is Mr. Mr. Pak, and your name is Mr. Chen. You're not Korean, you're Chinese. So I have a proliferation network that I need to finance, right? I don't take that to a North Korean bank and then make a deal with the Iranians. First, I take it to you, and you launder the money for me, and then you get it into a Chinese bank or a Singaporean bank, and then the money comes back to me. You see what I'm saying? That's how the North Koreans do business. So, it's important to understand when we're talking about North Korea's illicit financial networks, the people that we have to go after are the people that are not North Korean that are running those networks for them. Why do I say this? Because until last year, almost all of the sanctions focused on North Korean companies and North Korean individuals. So how effective do you think that was? Pretty effective? No. 
Um, so North Korea continues to do that. We have started doing some very good things to stop that. But let me give you my assessment on their uh, on what we need to do as far as these illicit financial activities go. Um, first of all, North Korea's economy would collapse without its illicit economic network. According to David Asher, has anybody ever heard of him? Yeah, everybody's heard of David Asher. Gosh, even the guy in the back, he didn't, maybe you just didn't raise your hand because you didn't want to embarrass. Anyway, um, David Asher, who ran a multi-agency task force along with another, and I say this completely without exaggeration, brilliant man named William Newcomb, um, those two ran an interagency effort that really had the North Koreans on the ropes. And they were the guys who brought in the Banco Delta Asia um, initiatives, which basically meant the North Koreans had no place to take their money in Asia during 2006 and 2007, completely ruined by the Bush administration when they decided to go back to the talks with the North Koreans in 2007. We all saw how well that went. Um, anyway, 40% of their economy, according to David Asher, illicit activities. China refuses to put any real pressure on North Korea. Keep that in mind. Um, China signed up for some very tough sanctions last fall. China is not enforcing those sanctions at all right now. So keep that in mind, too. U.S. and U.N. sanctions have been unsuccessful up until 2017, really, due to the lack of resources being used and lackluster international cooperation. Um, enforcement is the key. Sanctions uh, in effect and Treasury Department initiatives need resources, personnel, and international cooperation in order to proceed. I'm not kidding when I say this. In other words, we have some Koreans here. I don't think we have any Japanese or Singaporeans or Malaysians here. But, um, I mean, in order for us to succeed in our sanctions and sanction-like activities, who here knows what Patriot Act Section 311 is? The Wall Street Journal guy. Anybody else? <laughs> the Patriot Act Section 311 is what David Asher and Bill Newcomb actually used to go after the North Korean illicit financial networks and to pursue the Banco Delta Asia initiative back in 2005. And it worked. Um, the only reason that we didn't uh, bring about real change was because the presidential administration at the time made the wrong policy move after being able to put the North Koreans on the ropes. Um, so, what is starting to happen, but what in my view needs to happen more is we need to go after more banks more shell front companies and individuals outside of North Korea to be effective. And you missed this. This is Ian, by the way. Um, I've said this before, you got him, by the way. The guys running the show, not running the show, the guys that are um, doing the grunt work for the North Koreans, the guys that are doing the errands, the guys that are carrying the money, those guys are all not North Korean. For the most part, North Koreans are using intermediaries from other countries. For example, um, the Korea Mining Development Company, which has an office um, in Tehran, in Iran, actually uses Iranians and Africans to do its business for them, operating out of that office in Tehran. So we need to keep that in mind. Um, 
The new administration has sanctioned two banks, one small bank in uh, China, which is 145th out of 198, I believe. I got that out of your article, by the way. Um, and a bank in Russia as well. Um, I tell you this, and I'm not exaggerating. If, to know in a public way if the sanctions are really being used the way they can be, if anti-proliferation initiatives and anti-illicit financial initiatives are being used as they could be, we should be seeing something coming out of the State Department or the Treasury Department every week. Somebody doesn't like my lecture. We should, we should see something coming out of one of those two or both of them every week because, frankly, this is a game of whack-a-mole. As I said, in Malaysia alone, there are hundreds of North Korean front companies. We should be sanctioning those guys every week. And then they're, you know, using other front companies, and we sanction them, and on and on. It's a game of whack-a-mole, and in my view, we can last longer than they can. So, I'm done with that part of it. Now let's get into the fun stuff. Who they're proliferating to, and what they're proliferating to them. Um, how many people enjoyed that sanctions thing? Few. How many people were bored to death? And how many of you have seen three faces? Yeah, never mind. Okay, so let's talk about Syria first. Um, afterwards, I want you to get me the uh, rogue copy of the new UN panel of experts report, please. Um, but the book's already out, so it doesn't matter. But um, how do I put this? More than any government agency, and I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, more than any government agency, more, certainly more than any scholar, and more than any policymaker that I know of, the UN panel of experts has done outstanding work in the past four years or so especially. If you want to find really, really good, really detailed, really meticulous research, the best there is, oh, oh I'm sorry, except for this book, Look at the UN panel of experts, and by the way, seriously, I quote them a lot, so, um, you know, because they're a great source. Um, and according to the latest UN panel of experts report, of which I have seen bits and pieces of, there's a quote in that report that says, proliferation from North Korea to Syria goes on, um, North Korea first exchange ambassadors and officially became um, diplomatically tied to each other. Coincidentally, 1967 was also the year when my cousins defeated Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, uh, everybody in six days in the Six-Day War. It was also um, when North Korea first started sending weapons to Syria. So we're talking about North Korea proliferating to Syria. This is not a new thing. They proliferated weapons in 1967. They actually flew missions along with uh, uh, Syrian pilots, flew missions for the Syrian Air Force in 1973. They provided multiple rocket launchers and special forces support during the Bekaa Valley campaign in the early 1980s. Um, this is a long, violent relationship that the North Koreans have had with the Syrians. And the violence has been directed largely up until the end of the Cold War against the Israelis, of course. Um, now, the Cold War ends and everything changed. North Korea was doing all of this for gratis, for the Syrians, for countries in Africa, 
for lots of countries, but they were totally subsidized by the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. So North Korea is, you know, providing training and they're providing weapons and they're providing this and that, but they're also being totally subsidized by the Soviet Union. And so it was kind of their part. Cuba was doing the same thing. Um, the Cold War ends and it became cash and carry. So one of the first things that happened after the Cold War was um, Syria got a whole bunch of money, billions, from the Saudi Arabians for helping to fight them, for helping them to fight the Iraqis. Remember, we were offered a bunch of money too, but turned them down. Well, the Syrians accepted it. Um, they used at least some of that money to do several things. One is they bought Scud Seas, several hundred of them, from the North Koreans, and contracted the North Koreans to actually set up facilities where they would assemble the Scud Seas. Of course, um, Syria, Iran, Ethiopia, any of those places where North Korea has set up facilities, fabrication facilities, so that the countries could indigenously produce their stuff. What that means is the assembly lines are run by North Koreans, and those fabrication facilities cannot run without spare parts coming in from North Korea. Although that also makes it easier to proliferate them. If you're carrying a ship that has some spare scud, spark, spare scud parts, instead of these long scud seeds, it's easier to hide them, right? So it all makes sense. That was the early 1990s. They then moved on, and later on in the 1990s, to actually helping the Syrians with their chemical weapons program. Um, their chemical weapons program actually had fabrication facilities built by the North Koreans for the Syrians. And again, the spare parts, the precursors, all that stuff provided as they needed it. Um, beginning in the late 1990s, the North Koreans would conduct exercises annually with live chemical munitions with the Syrian army. I don't think I'd want to be in an army that conducted chemical training with live chemical weapons. Um, but that's what they started in the 1990s. Um, and that was in full mop gear. Anybody ever seen Soviet mop gear, the old Soviet mop gear with the long nose thing? It's really kind of scary looking. Ours, ours looks much cooler, by the way. But um, uh, that's what started off their chemical weapons program, to the point that when the Syrian civil war began, and back in, what was that, 2011? When the Syrian civil war began, all that the Syrians were doing was utilizing training they already had with weapon systems they already had. So it's, it's important for you to understand that. Now, what did that mean for the North Koreans? For the North Koreans, it meant all of a sudden their military industrial complex, such as it was, experienced a boom, right? Because now they got to make lots more scuds so the Syrians can fire them at the, at the rebels. they got to make lots more chemical weapons. they got to make lots more multiple rocket launchers because that's another way they launch uh, chemical weapons, the Syrians at their own people. So this has been a, a big boost for North Korea's proliferation profits, just Syria itself. Um, now, um, as they've been doing that, they've also been doing other things such as I already mentioned the rockets and the missiles. They've also been doing things such as refurbishing their T-54-55 tanks, providing them small arms, uh, providing them rocket-propelled grenades, etc., etc. At the same time they're doing that, they're also providing arms to Hezbollah and Hamas, although Hamas is separate. They're not fighting in that war. Um, and... Um, um, 
conventional weapons of the same sort to Iran. Okay? Now, let me get to one thing, speaking of weapons that go to Syria. Who knows what happened in 2007 in the eastern Syrian desert? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Yeah. Doug and I's cousins destroyed a plutonium uh, reactor built for the North Koreans for the Syrians. <clears throat> the North Koreans, when they built it, put a fake roof over it because apparently they thought the Israelis were idiots and wouldn't deter. Oh, a fake roof! Well, there must not be a plutonium reactor under there anymore. Anyway, uh, 2007, the Israeli Air Force takes it out. Nothing from the U.S. for a year. In my book, in the endnotes, you can find the link for the Director of National Intelligence um, report that actually came out and they released it online that gives you the complete report. They even list the names of the North Koreans who helped organize the building of that reactor. The interesting thing about that report is <clears throat> a couple of months after it came out, the former Iranian defense minister who had defected to Europe told his handlers that that reactor in Syria was paid for with $2 billion by the Iranians. So, there you go. Um, speaking of Iranians, how many of you would like to move on to Iran now? Okay, nobody. All right, we're going to move on to oh, one guy. <laughs> Um, Iran, I just talked about their nuclear program, I'll talk about it more. I want there to be no doubt in anybody's mind <clears throat> that Iran is the biggest customer of North Korea, period. You will sometimes see scholars write or newspaper reporters write that there's a relationship that goes on between North Korea and Iran, and some of it is North Korea selling to Iran, some of it's vice versa. No, that is not true. North Korea is the seller. Iran is the buyer. Let there be no ambiguity about that. And if you ever get in an argument with somebody about that, like you would argue about that anyway, right? Make sure you have my book in hand, and then you can prove it to whoever you're arguing about it. No, Mom, really. North Korea is the seller. Anyway, um, so what does Iran pay for? Iran pays for all the stuff that we just talked about with Syria. All the small arms, the tanks. They have many weapons facilities there, fabrication facilities, that were built with the assistance of the North Koreans. But they also shut down and bring back up assembly lines from time to time. So an example of that is the Type 73 machine gun. Anybody here know what that is? Everybody here knows what an SKS is, right? Okay, I know you do, guy in the back. Um, an SKS is, is a old Soviet uh, weapon, and it has a, long, has a long banana magazine on the bottom of it. Essentially, the North Koreans built a version of it called the Type 73 machine gun, only the, the magazine goes on top. So when you see people posing with it, like Houthis, or Iranians, or Syrians, or Al-Shabaab, there's no saying, well, I'm not really sure that's a Type 73 machine gun, because the magazine goes on top. It, it's, it's a definitive identification of the weapon as a North Korean-only manufactured weapon. Um, the Iranians get all that kind of stuff. The Iranians pay for a lot of what the Syrians buy. The Iranians pay for a lot of what Hezbollah buys. Now, anyone who's looked at Hezbollah, and I'm sure there's some of you here that have, you know 
Hezbollah has its own illicit activities, right? I mean, they've even done stuff in Latin America. They're kind of a crime syndicate themselves in a lot of ways. But they could not do what they're doing now, especially fighting in the civil war in Syria, unless they were really subsidized a lot by the Iranians. Largely the IRGC, um, is they're, they're pretty much the, for lack of a better term, acquisition type guys for dirty deeds for the Iranian government. Um, and of course the Iranians have a lot of their own stuff. Submarines built by North Korea, naval craft built by North Korea, every single type of missile you can imagine that's a liquid fuel missile. It's got B, C, D, E, R, the Musudan, the Nodong. <coughs> Excuse me. Who's here has heard of the Samorg rocket? Yes, the, the Iranians, I believe, launched a worm into space using the Samorg rocket. First stage, and everyone was saying, oh, the Iranians have done this. Wow, digitally produced a space launch vehicle. The first stage of the Samorg rocket is a no-dawn. I'm sorry, Sapur. The Samorg rocket is actually four clustered no-dawns, much like the Unha-3 that North Korea uses um, for their what we call the table dump. Um, North Koreans, what they do is they'll take old technology, they'll cluster it or they'll rebuild it or they'll re-engineer it, and it'll be something that has a, a better capability. And they've done that with the Unha 3. They helped the Iranians do it with the Samorg. Um, and they've done it with the Musatan as well. And by the way, the Iranians test fired the Samorg, the Saphir, and the, uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Help me, anyone, anyone? Bueller, Bueller. Um, and the Saphir, and the Saphir, all in 2017. In 2016, the Iranians test-fired an advanced version of the Nodong. And I think somebody on 38 North, that launch site, said this could be related to assistance from the North Koreans. Really, you think? Gee whiz. Um, so, there's the missiles. There's the conventional weapons. Now, everyone has heard about North Korea, excuse me, Iran's nuclear program, right? Everyone knows that Iran has a nuclear program. Um, everyone I know, how do I say this in a nice way? It's just not in me. Everyone I know on the left says, oh, the North Koreans, they're not really financing or helping, not financing, they're not assisting the Iranians with their, their nuclear program. Really? Okay. The U.S. government has never commented on this. The United Nations has never commented on this. Please allow me to read some excerpts from the press about this. Um, in 2003, in an article in the Los Angeles Times by veteran reporter Douglas Franz, who, by the way, ended up being Kerry's um, frontman at state, ended up being his, uh, what do you call frontman? Spokesman. Yeah, there you go. Um, wrote an article reporting Iranian contacts with China, Pakistan, Russia, and North Korea in pursuit of nuclear weapons capabilities. Um, most famous among those was, of course, A.Q. Khan. But um, France reported that so many North Koreans are working on nuclear and missile projects in Iran that a resort on the Caspian Sea is set aside for their exclusive use. By the way, according to an Iranian dissident group six months ago, the North Koreans are still using that tourist site on the Caspian Sea. 
I, I tell you, that must be really fun hanging out with North Koreans and the Caspian Sea and around. That must really rock. You know what I mean? Um, according to a January 2006 report by Robin Hughes in Jane's Defense Weekly, very credible source, North Korea constructed more than 10,000 meters of underground nuclear facilities for Iran. In 2011, reports in the European press suggested that North Korea had supplied Iran with a computer program simulating neutron flows and training on how to use it. And in November of that year, the Washington Post, citing intelligence provided to the IAEA, reported that Iran also relied on foreign experts to supply mathematical formulas and codes for theoretical design work for its nuclear program, some of which to have appear, appear to have originated in North Korea. So, uh, we also have dissident groups that have claimed the same thing. Um, we all, of course, have that defector from Iran, high-ranking defector, who said North Korea paid for serious plutonium program. So we'd wonder, if they paid for serious plutonium program, why would they not have their own people with a nuclear program from the same source? Um, and we have dissident groups, again, who have claimed several times, again, unsubstantiated, that Iran is receiving assistance from North Korea. So, I would just say this, where there's smoke is there fire. Um, and if you look at all these reports from many different sources, it appears to me that it is likely that North Korea has provided assistance to Iran's nuclear program. And I'll just stop there with Iran. Now, I've gone through um, what they got, uh, how they get it out, who they send it to, except for one, uh, one entity. And you know what that is? Anyone? Doug Struson sitting here saying, well, Bruce, how come you haven't talked about Africa yet? All right, Doug, I will. Um, how many of you, honestly, I was just at the Korea Society in New York. I like throwing that name out. I was at the Korea Society in New York City. And um, uh, Steve Norper, who's a good friend of mine, said right there on stage, I had no idea North Korea was selling all this crap in Africa. So um, let me just talk about what North Korea is selling in Africa. I'll start off with Egypt. Since 1979, North Korea has been selling missiles in some way or another to the Egyptians and small arms. Now, what happened in 1979? Does anybody know? What are we back in driver's head again? Mm -hmm. Iranian revolution. Huh? Iranian revolution. That too. Yeah. Uh, also true. Also in 1979, uh, May 1st, I was promoted to corporal in the United States Marine Corps. Very important. <laughs> but in 1979, and, and some cool things happened in 1979. That was when we had the um, peace talks between the Israelis and the Egyptians, right? And the United States started giving military aid to Egypt, to Egypt almost immediately. Well, Egypt had all these scuds they didn't know what to do with. So what would you do if you're an Egyptian and you want to make some money? You know, you just sell a couple of scuds to North Korea, right? North Korea had been trying to get ballistic missiles from China and the Soviet Union for years, and they were both like, yeah, whatever, get away from us, you little Korean guys. Well, the Egyptians said, sure, we'll sell them to you. 
they got their first scuds from Egypt around 1979. Around 1981, this is how smart North Koreans are, they had already had assembly lines set up and were producing their own scuds, which they immediately turned around and sold to the Iranians, scud bees, so they could fire them in Iraqi cities in the, the Iran-Iraq war. But guess who their second customer was? Egypt. So in other words, Egypt sold them scuds so that they could re-engineer them so that they could sell them back to Egypt. And they've been doing that since 1979. Um, they even built a scud fabrication facility in Egypt. Um, and two years ago, I believe, that was 2016, because we don't, I mean, when you, when you see these interdicted shipments, you're looking at probably 1% of what's actually going over. And I'm not exaggerating but they actually interdicted a shipment of scud parts going into Egypt from North Korea a couple years ago. Um, also, lots and lots of small arms uh, to Egypt. Uh, they caught a shipment in 2017 with 30,000 rocket-propelled grenades on it. Doug's checking his watch, so he wants me to quit pretty soon. Um, Namibia. Anybody even heard of Namibia? Yeah. I mean, Namibia has 2.5 million people. Between 2000 and 2016, according to the Royal Uniform Services Institute, a respected think tank somewhere in England, um, Namibia has bought $311 million worth of military assistance from the North Koreans between 2000 and 2016. Very strange. Sudan, 122-millimeter MRLs, AGP-250 ground, ground attack systems, and uh, unspecified ground-to-ground missile systems. Uganda, small arms of various types, training police forces, assembling and assisting with a small arms factory now operating in Uganda, and training their Air Force pilots. Angola, training of the Presidential Guard, training of elite units, sales of small arms, proliferation of naval craft, refurbishment of military systems. Eritrea, communications gear, surface-to-air missiles, rockets, explosives. Don't laugh at me, Frank. My mother laughed at me once. Once. Ethiopia, arms and ammunition factories, at least one, likely two. Tanks, artillery, small arms, military training key units. One of the DPRK's key customers in Africa and, ironically, one of our big allies in the war on terror. So isn't that interesting? By the way, if you go to Addis Ababa, which as you know is the cultural center of the universe, um, there, is a, there is a monument there with a T-55 tank. And it's dedicated to the North Koreans. Because when the Ethiopians and Eritreans were in their war, um, the Ethiopians were getting their tails kicked so bad in the tank battles that when the Ethiopian armor units would see the Eritreans coming, the tank commander would just pop the tank, tank open and run out. So they asked the North Koreans for assistance. And so the North Koreans started providing tank crews to the Ethiopians to fight the Eritreans, who, by the way, the North Koreans were also supplying. But uh, um, that monument was dedicated to the brave men who fought for the Ethiopian army from North Korea and actually says from DPRK. So, you know, you, never, you just never know. Zimbabwe, training of elite units by DPRK, SOF, small arms for infantry units. Mozambique, 
Man pads, P-18 early warning system, refurbishment of T-55 tanks, and the upgrading of Petrora anti-air system. Tanzania, refurbishment of MiG-21s, construction of military facilities, um, proliferation of anti-air systems. The Democratic People's Republic of the Congo, which I would barely call an ancient state, small arms, construction of military facilities, training of presidential guard and special forces. Allegations of others, including Madagascar and Benin. Hundreds of millions of dollars a year. I just read you off a laundry list. I probably bored the living daylights out of you. But if you're watching recording of this, you can play tonight when you're trying to get to sleep, and it'll help you just nod right off. Um, so we have these countries buying all these things. And a lot of it's little nicks and nats, this and that, right? 10 million here, 21 million here, 6 million here. But when you add up all the countries, it's hundreds of millions of dollars annually. So that's the two key areas of, of proliferation for North Korea. And let me be clear, um, North Korea does proliferate to other people. Burma, for one, has been in the UN panel of experts reports recently. Um, there are others. I hear renewed rumors of Pakistan, which is rather scary, but uh, um, the two key regions that North Korea proliferates weapons are the Middle East and Africa. And that's the title of my book, North Korean Military Proliferation in the Middle East and Africa, available at half price this evening. So that's pretty much all I have. Um, I'm ready to get pounded with questions now. Um, B, the answer is B. Go ahead. Hi, uh, I just was curious if you could talk a little bit about uh, how North Korea has developed the, the technical expertise to build some of these systems, whether it's a you know, nuclear program or some of the chemical weapons program, but that's not, it's available online, but it's not, you still need a lot of, you still need a lot of training. Why is everybody leaving? <laughs> so I'm just curious if you can speak about, about that, where they're trained, how they get their training, is it all indigenous? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, and and what does that say on your, uh, on your... <laughs> oh, NSA, I think I say, I work at Okay, so the, the, the Soviets, as some of you know, provided the North Koreans a five megawatt graphite-cooled plutonium reactor. Um, just like we provided the Indians, right, back during the Eisenhower administration, a nuclear reactor. Both countries said, if we give them nuclear power, they won't use it for war. Both of us are going, man, I wish we did. Not done that. Of course, the Indians are not, you know, a communist, socialist, uh, human rights violating, proliferating country like North Korea is, but the result was the same as far as what happened when we gave them nuclear technology. Um, so since they got the plutonium technology and were able, it took them years, it took them, you know, over 30 years to develop that, to weaponize that plutonium technology. Everybody knows about the agreed framework in 1994, right? Where they agreed to freeze but not dismantle their plutonium nuclear program. While that was going on, behind our backs, the North Koreans, um, in 1993, tested a Nodong missile. North Korea doesn't have a lot of money. Pakistan doesn't have a lot of money. So the Pakistanis cut a deal with the North Koreans where they paid the North Koreans with HEU technology and assistance for centrifuges for Nodong missiles. That's how they got the assistance for their highly enriched uranium program. 
if you're going to talk about their chemical weapons program, that came from the Soviet Union too. And that was again in the 1960s, and the Soviet Union just basically gave them everything they asked for. Um, for their ballistic missile program, I've already run through that, they got that from Egypt. So literally, when you talk about missiles, what the North Koreans often do is they take technology that's old, and then they build on it and make it a little bit better, right? They're really just tweaking it. So if you take, <coughs> and I'm not exaggerating, I'm exaggerating somewhat, but not much. So they get a Scud B, right? Uh, let's make it longer. Now it's a Scud C. Let's make it even longer. <laughs> Put more fuel in it. Now it's a Scud D. Okay, so now I've just explained to you the technology. Um, you take a, a Scud and make it really, really long, and you can call it a no-dong. Because that's basically Scud technology. And the first Tapodong, which was a three-stage missile, was based on Scud technology as well, or two-stage missile, sorry. Um, the missile, a lot of the technology that they've used in other missiles since then, like the Hwasong-12, what they call the Hwasong-12, is based on Musadon technology, what we call the Musadon, which is based on the old Soviet SSN-6 liquid-fueled submarine-launched ballistic missile. Um, they did not have the submarines to launch that type of missile back then. They do now. Uh, they have what's called the Shinpo class. Um, I, I, but it doesn't launch that kind of missile. It's a liquid fuel missile. The Shinpo launch is a solid fuel missile. But that missile they took, made their own, and then used the engines for several things, for several different types of missiles. Um, again, technology they got from, the, from rogue Soviet scientists, but they used it for lots and lots of things you never would have anticipated they, they would, simply because they had to adjust, right? The Soviets could just build a new engine for something. The North Koreans don't have that luxury, right? So they would take an engine for a submarine and build it for something else. Does that answer your question, basically? Basically, I was wondering more... Uh, you want to know every system? Come on, man. I was wondering more like how the people that are building systems are trained. Are they trained in China? Are they trained in Iran? Like where do they building what systems? The um, ones I just described to you? Yeah. No, they haven't been trained in the Soviet Union since Glasnost. Um, as far as being trained in China, no hard evidence, but the you know what the Hwasong 14 is, right? An ICBM? The launcher that they used was Chinese. So the Chinese didn't send me a memo saying, yeah, we train these guys up here. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if the Chinese gave them that launcher, they probably trained them how to do it. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Girl with glasses, just like my daughter. <laughs> I have two questions. Um, the first one is, during your research, have you found indicators of the Iranian Health Service, which is um, MIS? So have you, find, have you found any indicators of their um, involvement in the North Korea uh, nuclear proliferation in the Middle East? Also, when North Korea is selling weapons to regimes in the Middle East and Africa in non-state actors, which are very hard to penetrate, um, how can we prevent North Korean proliferation? Because it's also tied to counterterrorism, I think. Often tied to what? It's also, I think it's also tied to counterterrorism strategy. Counterterrorism. Oh, I agree. <clears throat> and by the way, when we go after those banks, you know what uh, the Patriot Act Section 311 is, right? It's a counterterrorism initiative. Yeah. And so we've literally done that. Our government has said, yes, this is related to counterterrorism. Now, how do we contain North Korea's proliferation? I was hoping somebody would ask me that question. And I know you, so I'm glad you did. Thank you for the softball. Um, 
In Africa, I think it would be fairly easy, and we've done it a couple times already. A lot of these guys that North Korea sells their weapons to in Africa are our allies, right? I mean, um, we could put pressure on those guys and have somewhat already on Mozambique and on a non-ally on on uh, the Sudan, where where we on the Sudan we uh, last year we said we're not going to lift any sanctions till you stop buying weapons from the North Koreans. So they stopped buying weapons from the North Koreans. We lifted some sanctions, and guess what? In the new UN panel of experts reports report that isn't out yet, but that I've seen pieces of, Sudan's buying weapons again from North Korea. So that's that's great. Um, and Egypt, where we held up <clears throat> we held up aid until they agreed to stop buying stuff from North Koreans. Let's hope they're more transparent than the Sudanese. Um, so we have that leverage in Africa, although it ain't working out so well so far. Now, in the Middle East, what leverage do we have to do something like that over Syria or Iran or the Houthis or Hezbollah? They're already sanctioned, right? We've already labeled them rogue states and or terrorists. So really the best way to go after, and that's where the biggest money is, by the way, as you guys all have figured out, I'm sure, is the Middle East. Best way to go after that is to go after the network. Go after those illicit financial networks. Go after them hard. Go after the banks. Go after the front companies. And go after the individuals. There's hundreds of front companies just in Malaysia, for example. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. Um, my first question was actually, um, you, you definitely answered my second question. Okay. I was also wondering about the role of um, Iranian... Um, of who? Iranian intelligence Iranian. service, which is called NYS. Right. I'm wondering if you have... Uh, found any indicators of NYS involvement in uh, in North Korean nuclear proliferation within the Middle East? You know, like selling weapons. Nuclear proliferation? Yeah, so like selling weapons to uh, both Iranian regime, but also like any other terrorist organization, like Hezbollah or Hamas or. Well, they sell all those guys. For Hezbollah, it's been constant and a lot. They don't sell; they give it to them. Um, for Hamas, it's been on again, off again. As you know, Hezbollah, Shia. Hamas is not. And so sometimes Hamas does things that irritate the Iranians and they'll stop for a while and they'll give them more for a while. It just depends. But everything that I've seen, and there's a lot of reports on this, says that it's the IRGC that's in charge of that. So I'm sure there's a, a door somewhere in the IRGC building in Tehran. Sales to bad guys. And then there's some guy that sits back there with a turban. I'm joking, obviously, but it's the IRGC. That, uh, that sells those weapons uh, to those countries and acquires weapons for Iran from countries such as North Korea, China as well, places like that. I hope I answered your question. I'm not saying that, that the organization you brought up isn't involved, something for me to look into, but uh, not something we've seen yet. You got a question, Frank, and then we'll get Ian too. Uh, Bruce, you talked a bit about uh, North Korean cyber development. Right. Have you seen any indication Not Africa, in the Middle East, yes. There's been press reports that they're selling the cyber, that there's actually been press reports several that they're collaborating with the Iranians, which once again probably means they're selling the Iranians or buying, um, and the Syrians as well. Um, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Frank, because I this book I finished writing in May, and there's been a lot of stuff that's come out since May 
that has set that has given us indications North Korea's cyber capability is far and more advanced than we thought it was. Um, you know, and, and by the way, those guys are the by and large the most effective guys that do cyber in North Korea are special operations forces, part of the Reconnaissance General Bureau, and reportedly the children of the elite. So they're special forces guys, but they're special forces guys who sit next to a computer and are poking on it all day. You know, so they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a special forces guy. Anyway, I hope that answers your question. Ian. Well, just a comment on that. It just seems from our recent reporting that uh, that they may actually be building some larger archives of all the code um, that they can uh, that it happens. Uh, whether it's Western coding, whether it's Western software, so you just understand the way you can enter, no matter what the app is. Um, uh, that's done through uploading events and uh, contracting. Besides the malicious work, but the, the same. Same cells are doing both. Uh, how do we know that Russia is not in Syria financing uh, North Korean operations? Why, why, why is it only. Well, Russia is in North Korea. And, and if, if I may. Or, excuse me, is in Syria. Uh, yes, in Syria. Uh, secondly, why will the Iran sanctions not cut those uh, financing flows to uh, Syria and Why would they not what? Because they use front companies too. Um, and just so we're clear on this, uh, Iran was under sanctions most of the time the Syrian civil war was going on, right? Just like Syria. So, so you know, people ask me, well, well, isn't is North Korea under sanction? Yeah, so is Iran, so is Syria. Um, so, uh, and as I said, Korea Mining Development Company, a company I'm sure you've heard of, uh, heavily sanctioned company, they have an office in Tehran. Um, so the sophisticated means that North Korea uses to get the money to Iran, or excuse me, get the money from Iran and get the equipment to Iran and the training, um, and I'll talk about that in a second too because I think that's important, uh, has been going on for a while and they're very good at it. I'm talking about Russia. Uh, I want to go back to 2013, okay? That's when I first started getting really motivated to write this book because so few people were talking about North Korean proliferation to Syria. Um, I'm watching congressional testimony, and this guy is testifying in front of Congress. He's a general, a four-star general, and Senator McCain asked him, where is the support, the technology, the training for this chemical weapons program coming from? And the general looked at him and said, from Russia and elsewhere. My, my response to that is, oh, come on, man. You know, why they didn't want to mention North Korea is beyond me. Has North Korea received some assistance for its chemical weapons program from the Russians? Probably a little, but nothing like what they've received from the North Koreans. And, you know, right up until the last, you know this, Ian, right up until the last UN POE report, they were saying the chemical weapons were still coming in from North Korea into Syria. Precursors, weapons, tiles, etc. Um, and this latest report which I hope to get a copy of from you, um, says the same thing, that it's continued unabated. So are the Russians uh, actually providing payment to the North Koreans? Is that what you're asking me? I haven't seen anything like that. Everything I've seen says 
the bulk of it's coming from the Iranians paying for the Syrian purchases, and some of it's coming from the Syrians, but not most of it. And I haven't seen anything about the Russians. If they're doing it, they're keeping it very low key. Does that make sense to you? Uh, yes, just on the, uh, the sanctions part, I'm not talking about the sanctions being able to stop the flow that's a good point well I know that when the sanctions when the JCPOA went into effect and you know anyone who asked me said so do you think this is a good deal and of course my response was <laughs> John Kerry brokered it need I say more but uh, um, as, as far as Things being opened up so that the, the Iranians could buy more stuff from the North Korean Koreans. I think that was. I think that's a given. Um, okay, and I'm being told to wrap it up. So, I, but I think that's a given. The fact that we've cut off that we we have reinitiated sanctions. I think that's hurting too. And uh, I could take one more question, and then I got to cut it off so that that you guys can all buy books. Fifty percent off. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. So, to what extent does your book cover the effectiveness of maximum pressure, and to what extent does the Trump administration know about your findings, and what are they doing to act on it? So, you're asking me if people from the Trump administration have talked to me. That's part of it, yeah. Yeah, I, I really can't. Okay, you don't have to what say. What do you think? I, I'm just trying to figure out, like, Obviously, a lot of activity has been going on, but recently, maximum pressure was put into place. Right. I'm trying to understand to what extent um, is maximum pressure failing to reach all the sources of problems? You know, that's a very good question, and, and I think we should be seeing Treasury Department initiatives, State Department initiatives every week. We're not. We should be, right? Because the front companies, especially, and a lot of these banks are moving their dirty money in and out of, that's that's a constant process with the with the North Koreans. That that tactics, techniques, and procedures that they use, constantly moving around. Um, we're not seeing enough of that yet. Now, the South Korean officials on the, on the White House lawn, when Trump said he was going to talk to Kim Jong Un, remember that back in in uh, in April, the South Korean officials said. This is because of the maximum pressure campaign that the, that the North Koreans came. Now, is that true, or was that just wishful thinking on the South Koreans wanting us to say, oh boy, look, this is because of us. This isn't because Moon Jae-in, after the Olympics went over and talked Kim Jong-un into us, it's because of the maximum pressure campaign. Okay, it's possible. But it didn't seem to me like it was in effect for that long yet. Would it have worked? Will it work? I think it has the potential to work. Have we seen it work in the past? Yes, we have. It worked when David Asher and Bill Newcomb helped that interagency effect go into place in 2005. Now, since that time, the North Koreans have learned they've diversified. Their financial networks are so diverse now, it's like a giant spider web. I hope everyone understands that. So, um, there's probably dozens of banks in places like Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, China, Russia, Mozambique, Liechtenstein, which by the way has a great skiing team. Uh, 
there are, it, it is very diverse and it will take more of an effort and more resources to do what we did, to do now what we did in 2007. I'm hoping we're on our way. So given the fact that we don't see um, additional sanctions weekly, we can assume that maximum pressure is really not, or whatever uh, sanctions the Trump administration is putting forth now is not sufficient. The fact that we don't see... Uh, well, let me cut you off there real quick. Four things that we see that are official sanctions or official sanction-like initiatives by the Treasury Department and State Department, yes. I'm sure there's things going on behind the scenes that we don't see. We didn't realize, for example, when the whole BDA thing happened, we didn't realize that the North Koreans were really in a hurt locker till about 2007. But they were in a hurt locker by 2006 already. We just didn't see it, at least in the public. Now, if I had been working at DIA at the time or for the State Department, I probably knew about it. I didn't. You see what I'm saying? So let's hope. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Bye, <laughs> <laughs>